Um, well, I'm just going to take a photo of us. Oh, why is it? It's all blowing out. Where's the oh, because the there sweet we spot. There we go. We'll take you in normal position as we progress. Oh. It blew out again. Okay. Um, talky, talky, talk. Blah, 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 blah. Is that good? Great. Um, yeah, I do it with my camera, but my camera's a piece of shit. So, right. Getting, uh, no, that's okay. Okay, cool. My camera's fine. I took a reasonable photo, I think. It's episode C. Episode 6 of Coming Up Next. Hey friends and welcome to the Tuesday Ramble or it might be Sunday when you're listening to this in which case it's probably the future um, or the present for you or maybe even the past. I am super psyched to announce this week's guest uh, sitting opposite me. He is a man who is in the kids TV show Steampunks. He has his own podcast called 28 Plays Later. Uh, He is a very talented actor, uh, comedian, and uh, presenter. My guest this week, Paul Verhoeven. Paul and I get down and dirty pretty uh, pretty quickly, getting into the uh, into the deep fields. And and Paul's oddly beautiful analogy involving a spit valve. Uh, If you're interested in checking out Paul's podcast, you can check it out. Twenty eight plays later on iTunes or 28playslater.com, which is 28playslater.com. You can find Paul on the Instagrams, on the tweeting Twitters. So let's get straight into it, friends. Episode 6, coming up next, Paul Verhoeven. Oh, I was meant to tell you I saw Mad Max last night. Oh, good, good. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. It is an excellent film. There we go. Mm. It's weird. It's not polarizing at all. The only people who don't like it are men's rights activists and the occasional weirdo like David Stratton. So <laughs> he didn't like it. He he came out against it. I can't see any reason why you wouldn't like it. Yeah, me too. Me too. I yeah. You know, like, people who don't like chocolate and they're very proud about it. I th- I feel like it's contrarianism and it's a problem with people these days. So like. Mm. They wait until everybody has expressed a positive opinion for something. They see that a positive groundswell is kind of brewing. And then they stand back and they kind of step into the center of the room, figuratively. Yeah. And they clear their throat and everyone looks at them and they go, actually, here's why you're all wrong. Like, it's this kind of insane smugness that some critics have that really shits me. And I won't name names, but uh, it's the reason I'm not enjoying... Or I haven't enjoyed being a critic for some time now. Off films, anyway. So, yeah. Anyway. It's going to turn the light on. Yeah. Oh, don't worry about it. It's all right. Um, yeah, because I was watching it and I'm like, how can anyone say anything bad about this mm-hmm. film? It's truly is. It's amazing. Amazing. It's and a, just. It's an aggressive commentary on like Afghani warlords and human trafficking and you know women being treated as objects and suicide bombers and the environment and gender politics and like he consulted major major feminist academics beforehand going look I don't want to fuck this up Mm. there's a lot riding on this so how can I do this in the best way possible and it is just such a like the second time it's even better right because it's kind of like learning a language seeing a film sometimes you know those films you rewatch as a kid and you just watch over and over and over Mad Max is one of those films I'm going to be watching for a long time Um, I just love it it may have snuck into my top 10 wow yeah I think so it's a big call yeah I heard Kevin Smith describe it as uh, it's like when you come and then whoever's made you come just keeps keeps going and going and going and it's just that intense level of uh, what you mean just wait so you finished so you finished but then they keep going they keep going that's awful though well that's the thing it's like it's so intense so right. it's 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 pleasurable but it's just so there's so much uh, intensity going on in what you're feeling yeah. I guess. Although that that's like nine seconds and then I'm like, go away. I, just, I, need, I need a bath. So yeah. Kevin Smith's, um, his metaphors are always a little bit colourful. Yes. 
Well, there's a pretty good chance he's usually stoned when he's making them. I, his podcast got good when he started getting high. Mm. And I couldn't figure out what the noise was for a while because if the, for those of you who listen to Smodcast, which is Kevin Smith's podcast with his um, producer and longtime friend Scott Mosier, he basically... God, did we just plug Kevin Smith? He doesn't need our fucking publicity. No, no. Um, he does this thing where occasionally he'll just... Just little puffs and then pauses. And then after a while, he I think he stopped trying to hide it. And you can just hear him lighting a joint every once in a while, like the flick of a lighter. I've so, never noticed that, actually, really. when if you I listen, listen to his podcast. Yeah. If you try listening to his podcast pre-weed, it's pretty dull. Yeah. Right. Um, I think some people just need a certain push to be really comfortable. Mm. I, I have loved listening to his podcast, though. Well, he's um, a very inspiring figure in yeah. the entertainment world, even though, you know, his films aren't groundbreaking. Mm-hmm. Um, his approach to filmmaking is pretty remarkable. Well, yeah, because him and George Miller have that in common. Like, especially when you're building creative works by committee, which happens increasingly in TV and film and games and whatnot. Mm. It's nice to have somebody who has their identity stamped really clearly on their work. So even if I don't like it, I will encourage more of it. So Mm. that George Miller piece of art, Mad Max Fury Road, that is so George Miller. Like it's so, and not just George Miller, obviously the people he worked with, but they've all got a very coherent voice. Mm. And Kevin Smith, even though I don't like all of his films, like you can tell they're Kevin Smith films. Like even when he made that foray with Red State into kind of like gritty, um, you know, like dark Coen Brothers-esque horror. Like it's very Kevin Smith. Yeah. Um, And it does have that annoying establishing setup where it feels like a Kevin Smith comedy and then shit just goes very south. Now, was it, I was convinced for a while based on the trailers that Brian Cranston was playing the... Um, the leader of the church in that. I'm very much wrong, aren't I? It's not Brian Cranston. No, it's not Brian Cranston. It's... Um, I can't believe I've forgotten his name. Um, <laughs> I know he's I know he's very well known for some stuff. So. Yeah. I mean, he wasn't... He, I think he was well known in sort of niche audiences before that and Kevin Smith brought it. He was also in Tusk as the mad scientist in that. Okay. Um, I couldn't watch Tusk because I listened to the podcast where he actually spawned that yeah. where it was just like this stoned conversation based on um, I think it was an ad not an ad in Craigslist it was some it was something like that right like it was a call for coming come to my house and you have to do these certain things and then him and Scott basically got high and just sort of like exploded it out into this bit about the Tusk plot and then he turned it into a, like a hyper realistic human centipede style scenario and I was once Writing for the Vine, and we had to review the Human Centipede, and so uh, my friend Luke and I thought, okay, let's do a hear no evil, see no evil review. What's that? Oh, so one of us has to watch it whilst listening to really happy music in on noise cancelling headphones. So you can't get up; you have to stare at the screen and watch this stuff going on while, like, you know, the Candyman by Sammy Davis Jr. plays and shit. And then the other person has to sit there with a blindfold on and listen to the and listen to the film very loud. And then afterwards, you kind of reflect upon your experiences together. Right. Turns out uh, it was really awful. I got the plot. I got the broad beats of the plot. But for him, the autopsy scenes were the worst, you know, where they're actually doing the sewing. Because the Foley work is quite spectacular. Mm. If you've never heard a mouth being sewn to an anus, you really haven't lived. It's, it's just spectacular. Mm. Michael Parks, by the way. Michael Parks. Yeah. You Googled that so silently and so I'd, swiftly. I really hate that you said that because I didn't Google it. Didn't you? No. I just used memory recall. What is that if not Google? Anyway. Google in the brain. Organic Google. Yeah. Um, I mean, that all that all segues. I, I tried to be clever and, and have a, an unobtrusive start to the podcast. I think um, it worked. I feel like it kind of worked. It's pretty organic. Yeah. yeah but but actually, you, could t- you could tell that I knew that was happening. Yeah, I could. Yeah, great. I could. And it, and it kind of threw me. I was like, oh, didn't work. Um, but you, you want that moment where I'm like, are we recording? And you're like, yeah, this is the podcast. Yeah. And we both look at the viewer and it gets really <laughs> meta. Great. Yeah. Um, that was exactly what I was hoping would happen mm-hmm. verbatim. And now we're talking about the shit. This is like Inception. <laughs> Podception. Um, but you did actually segue into something that I wanted to talk to you about, which is the value of social media because. I mean, this, these podcasts are all over the place. Like I, I, I do some research and I write a structure of like an order of events and then of, of things that I want to talk about. And then it's just like, just ends up being all over the place. Sure. Um, because I, you know, I, there's so much I don't know about what you've done and how you've arrived at this point. Mm. But, you know, I guess you take a hook where you can, where you, where you find it. And yeah, Kevin Smith makes a film based off his social media following essentially because everyone hashtags uh, walrus yes or walrus no that's right yeah um 
And you have one of the most prolific outputs in social media, definitely anyone I know personally, mm. and of a lot of people that I follow on Twitter, um, Facebook, and Instagram. Mm. And uh, I was, you know, reading some stats that um, it was in 2012 or something that you were in the top hundred people in the country for yeah, the was, amount of followers you had. Yeah. Yeah, social media has been weird for me because I only got onto Twitter because I was um, working at Triple J and I was told by a friend that I should probably get onto it. Um, and because I have like spectacular ADD, it's a really good way to just kind of spit out non, like you know, non unrelated thoughts to an audience. And so I would do the mid dawns over at Triple J and I'd be sitting there tweeting at people and kind of taking requests and stuff, and that would turn into a whole thing. And then, um, and then I started doing some breakfast radio at Triple J and filling in for Tom and Alex. And then Twitter became really big. And I would start live tweeting events and stuff like that. And Twitter's actually gotten me work. Like it's gotten me legitimate work. My Twitter following got me sent to um, CES, which is the big uh, like electronics expo over in Vegas uh, once a year. And so Sony were like, hey, you got a big uh, Twitter following. You're pretty funny. Do you want to come across to Vegas? And I'm like, I can't afford it. And they said, idiot, we'll pay for the whole thing. <laughs> so these lovely people over at Sony were like just kind of bundled me up and whipped their credit cards out and just said look if you just want to talk about it on social media and just use the relevant hashtags that's cool um you know have a good time do you want to jump off the stratosphere casino it's a thousand feet and then we'll pay for all your food on the way back and i'm like yes they strapped a gopro to my wrist it was weird uh and i've ended up getting like more work through social media than i would have thought possible uh but every year somebody says look twitter's dying twitter's on the down the downswing i'm like but if it is, then why am, why are things still going so well? I think Twitter's a really powerful tool. Um, and I think I sound like a really powerful tool saying phrases like that on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask you this. How important, because I mean, so many people in the entertainment industry strive for perfection. I'm doing air quotations here. We can feel the wind buffeting against the microphone. Yeah, that's what I was hoping. Mm -hmm. um, and But to really do social media well and use the tool properly um, to sound like a tool. Mm -hmm. uh, you really need to just throw perfection or the idea of perfection out the window because it's much more about being prolific and yeah. just being having consistency. And that's probably actually a really good um, metaphor for, I guess, pursuing a career in the entertainment industry is you, you kind of have to throw that idea of being perfect or getting things right all the time or nailing it every time out the window. Yeah. Really, especially in comedy even as well. Well, for comedy, comedy is weird for me because I've, I've always had a comedy angle, but I've, I only started doing comedy, like stand-up comedy relatively recently. But I was always into comedic acting. But like I, I was pretty much using Twitter as a chance to get jokes out there which then had the Vine contact me and say, hey, do you want to turn some of those into a series of webcomics, which led to like four years as like a syndicated webcomic artist, which is just the weirdest gig. Um, it was called Lessons for Children and we were going to do a coffee table book and it was a whole weird thing. And I've got like folders full of single panel comics back yeah. at my house, which were like, we had a pretty big following and that all came from like doing comedy on social media. Um, but the person that actually like taught me about focusing your kind of brand on Twitter, which is, again, is just a pure wank in terms of like terminology. Um, I got into radio because of two reasons. One, I was a big fan of Triple J growing up and I was a big fan of Recovery and I was a very big fan of um, Jane Gazzo on Super Request. Um, Did you like Dylan Lewis? I liked Dylan Lewis, but I really liked Jane Gazzo and she was great. And then I did my like first weekend breakfast shift on Triple J uh, about, I think, six years ago or something like that. And I'd had a bit of a weird day because I'd had a few people that I kind of knew in the public sphere who were SMSing in Triple J going, who is this clown? He's giving a bad name to Triple J. And I was really crestfallen because, you know, you can say anything on SMS and people don't have any filter. And then I got uh, a tweet from Jane Gazza going, uh, that was the best broadcast I've heard in Triple J in 15 years. And I was like, holy shit. Wow. And I was like, you were listening? She's like, yeah, you were great, man. Really good. We'll keep up the good work. And then like, we've had occasional interactions and it's really cool to get that kind of feedback. But I, because of her and I listened to um, Russell Brand's initial radio show on uh, BBC Radio 6, I think. And it was him and Matt Morgan and it was a really good show. I'm not a fan of his stand-up, but his radio work was mm. amazing. Really amazing. And very... He was basically all about kind of um, constantly branding. So whatever... I mean, that's not a pun. But it was like he, his basic thing was like, whatever you do in whatever form of media, it should be very you. Yeah. So that whenever people hear and see you, even if it's just for a moment, they're like, oh, that's like a... That's a Paul Verhoeven thing. Mm. So I tried to create like a really clear brand identity. Um, so what was that? It was basically hipster nerd. 
for yep. a while. So I was doing um, Nerds of a Feather on Triple J Breakfast for a few years with Robbie Reek and the Doctor. And then I was doing it with Tom and Alex for a few years. And that was all very much good about... That was good for solidifying my image. And every gig I've taken since then has sort of conformed to that. So as a result, I've kind of developed a very humble following who know that I have a very... It's like if you have an ice cream flavor you like. You go to the fridge and you see a bunch of shit you don't recognize. But if you see that one flavor that you always get, you tend to reach for that flavor. So that's how people who are kind of personalities, as opposed to just good at one thing... Um, brand themselves and that's what social media is good for because everything I write theoretically is kind of set in my voice and every article I write for The Vine or Junkie or Pedestrian or every appearance I have on Kids TV it's always got kind of a little splash of Mm. my sweet flavor there's definitely consistency in all of that yeah that's also that can be a double-edged sword though which is honestly the best kind of sword if you're rushing into battle because if you hear them with the end that doesn't have an edge on it you're really just doing blunt force actually that's kind of cool you could have like a might have been like a stick, though. Just a big metal stick. Mm-hmm. Cool. Cool segue, Paul. Uh, where was where was I? Oh, yeah. Double-edged sword. Again, I insist that's a good idea in terms of um, swordsmanship. I agree. Yeah, but if you over-specialize, right? Mm. But you need to know, you need to be doubly as crafty. Well, yeah, because when I entered kids' TV um, for steampunks, people were like, man, you've got to be careful because you could enter kids' TV and then... Because there was a show called Amazing on Channel 7 yeah, growing James up. Sherry. James Sherry. James uh, Sherry. Talented performer. He'd done Saturday Disney and he yep. got this game show called Amazing and it was huge set. Amazing. Like this incredible maze. Hidden keys. Like Nintendo Donkey was sponsors. Kong. Yeah, it was amazing. It was it was literally amazing. It had a very distinctive theme song. Amazing. Uh, amazing. I once went to a 21st in a factory where they'd recreated the set and at midnight somebody had gotten hold of James Sherry's phone number and they called him because they wanted him to get on speakerphone on the speakers and like kind of narrate the party a bit but he was very tired and obviously said no but it was still I was at this party and shut suddenly up. there was this dude talking on the speakers it was James Sherry it was pretty weird and he was so, like shut just, just leave it's me alone the, it's in the mailbox fuck off <laughs> uh, just watch DuckTales whatever so um, life is like a hurricane it is uh, in, I can't remember the rest of that song here in Duckwell great no Duckburg Duckburg that's right. Cool. I fucked it up. That's all right. Sure. even now. So <laughs> when I took the Steampunks gig, I didn't have an agent at that point. I'd been ditched by my agent because apparently I wasn't viable talent. At which mm. point, of course, all the work started flooding in. And I had people kind of, kind, not like, it, it's tricky to negotiate a contract without an agent. Always have an agent. Always have a good agent. So I do Steampunks and everyone was saying, look, you, you want to be careful because you've got this whole hipster nerd thing. And at the core of that is like this weird Dickensian fop who's a bit Blackadder, a bit Sean McAuliffe, and he's very like pop culture-y. But if you go too far down that apex, you won't be able to dig yourself out. And that's what Steampunks was. So I'd, I'd taken everything I was good at and just like focused it down to like a laser beam. Mm. And then I, for a little while, it was really hard to get work doing anything else apart from kids TV. And the natural... The natural inclination for Hollywood actors when they've been typecast to do something opposite. Like Jennifer Aniston was, uh, you know, in Friends for years, couldn't get work. And so she did, I think, The Good Girl, where she plays this sort of yeah, like... Yeah, Jack Gyllenhaal. Yeah, where she plays this kind of not... She's still Jennifer Aniston, but she's... It's, it's a gritty role. She tried to do yeah. something in the opposite direction. Problem is, you can't get gritty roles without having done gritty roles, generally speaking. Very few people are willing to just take a kid's star and chuck him in a drama role. So I've kind of spent the past couple of years... Not clawing my way back, but just doing as much different stuff as possible, so that like, and it's it's paying off. Mm. Like I'm just spraying seeds everywhere, and they're, they're well, you, you know, you spreading. got a you got a big role in a in a pretty awesome TV pilot. Which one was that? <laughs> uh, I think it was called Sweatshop. Sw- sweet Shop. Sweet Shop. Sweet Shop. Yeah, I was a I was a I was a seller of sweets. No, I wasn't Sweet Shop, and uh, it's it's <laughs> it's very good. I saw it. Uh, yeah, that was cool because that was like that was nothing like the role I played in Steampunks. Um, uh, God, yeah, I was just a shameless self promotion. You're allowed to self promote. It's a very good show. Um, it's it, no, I, it's um, I do occasionally go back to kids TV, mm. and. Uh, you do things like the project now as well. You do the whip on that. I mean, I guess that's more in line with what you were doing before and probably possibly not what you're talking about in terms of diverging into more dramatic yeah. stuff. Yeah, this would be this is kind of like a good, like a baseline, mm. you know, because I'm basically being myself on the project. Um, but I get to write my own 
pieces. So I get to chuck my own dumb humor in there. So it's very much in keeping with my brand once again. Mm. God, I'm talking about my brand so much. But that's, you know, that's, there's a, there is certainly something to be said for that. And you're one of the, these people potentially that's at, that was at the forefront of this idea for our generation of people. Because a lot of people in the entertainment industry, when you go to film school or you go to drama school or you go to music school or which, you know, you, you go and... Wizard school. Wizard school. Mm. Um, and you go to Hogwarts. They don't have a unit at Hogwarts that's about wizardry entrepreneurship. Hey, can I point out that they also don't have math or English? Well, they, you don't need it. Why not? Why would you need it? Well, you need English to speak the English, to read the spells. Well, why do all the spells have to be in English? But then they would learn other languages. They, there's no... What I'm saying is that on the Hogwarts timetable, there's no like just... Because it would have been so easy for her to chuck in. Harry and Ron staggered back from English. This is boring, they said, and they went straight into divination. Like they, She could have done that very easily. Mm. I have headcanoned this. Um, do you, are you familiar with what headcanon is? Because uh, in like in in like any kind of in like any law scenario, Star Wars, Star Trek, Harry Potter, Doctor Who, whatever, there's the canon, which means it's officially what happened in that universe, right? It's official. If it's not official, it's fan fiction. It's useless to me. Head canon is where they've been vague in the canon, so you can sort of contort it in your head so that it works a certain way. You know, like let's say two characters looked at each other suggestively in the credits rolled. You can head canon it so that they ended up together. Right. You don't have to say it to other people. It's just a private little thing you hold in your heart, right? <laughs> yeah. So in the Hogwarts day, we don't see the whole day. So there's no reason why J.K. Rowling couldn't just go, oh, we just didn't cover the English and maths because it's boring. Like it's happening at Hogwarts. I think I tweeted that at her once and she never replied. <sighs> One day. Anyway. Anyway. I'm not. I'm not really au fait with the Harry Potter to continue this. That's okay. We don't have to. This, this train of thinking. But I will say for listeners, I am a very proud Hufflepuff. Badges for life. Just. And you thank Dumbledore when you won. Oh, uh, when you when you came second runner up <laughs> in the 2011 Clear Bachelor of the Year, which by the way is a really fancy way of saying you came third. I was going to say that. Yeah. Because the first place was um, Eamon Sullivan, who was, uh, I think, a swimmer. And we got there. Like, it was insane. So for, for those of you who don't know, every year, Clio magazine, the lovely folks at Clio, will do this Bachelor of the Year thing. And basically, agents put forward eligible bachelors. Bachelor, by the way, means not married. Mm. You can be gay. You can be in a long-term relationship. You just can't be married, which is a bit sneaky. It does seem a bit odd. It's a bit odd. So, so, wait, the... so the show Bachelor, the guy in the show Bachelor, mm. could actually be in a long-term relationship. Mm-hmm. And that's still technically correct. Mm-hmm. And he's just skeezing on all these girls. Could be. Giving him roses. Well, some of them not, but... You watch The Bachelor? Only when Tegan makes me. Yeah. It's... Which is no longer going to be a thing because I don't live there anymore. And I do. And you do. We, I, I live in your room. You live in my room now. Yeah, literally. Uh, what were we talking about before? Uh... Uh, when you were Bachelor of the Year, yeah. second runner-up. Yeah, so we get there and it's like this huge ballroom in the city and the, the photos are online. It's bizarre. They take you for this photo shoot and they're like, you're a Melbourne hipster, get on your... They sort of got me a fixed speed bike and a kind of like weird suit and a scarf and stuff and it's the most effete photo you'll ever see of me. Like, it's absolutely bizarre. Anyway, we get there on the night and there's all like, there's people there from neighbours and there's models and there's athletes and there's a children's book author and there's DJs and it's like 50 very handsome, very friendly lovely guys all in tuxedos massive red carpet event hundreds of journalists are there it's very strange Ruby Rose is in one corner being fucking Ruby Rose uh, <laughs> Sophie Monk's presenting the awards the editor of Cleo's up there and we all made this a pact because we're like Eamon Sullivan rocked up after us and had his own press junket and we're like oh this is bullshit like it's rigged they, we, they already know Eamon's won everyone knows it's not about voting it's about like who will sell the most magazines so we're like this is bullshit we're done and we all had this pact where we're like alright if any of us gets an award, we're not going up. And we're all very drunk at this point. And we're like, yeah, yeah, solidarity. <laughs> and then one of my hosts is like, is this tr- are you going to go up if you get anything? I'm like, no, seriously, we're all, we're all bros. And we all high-fived and we all agreed and handshook. We get up there and then they go, okay, and uh, the second runner-up is Paul Verhoeven. Uh, and everyone looked at me and just went, go on, dickhead. And they all pushed me out and they're all like clapping and laughing and it's great. And I got up and I was very, very drunk and I had not prepared anything. So I said, I would like to thank Albus Dumbledore without whom none of this would be possible. And then I panicked and saw that nobody had responded to the nerd stuff. So I just threw out the most aggressive sports reference I could think of and just screamed, go Knicks, into the microphone. <laughs> and then I just <laughs> I meekly handed the microphone back to the editor of Cleo, who was pissing herself. But I looked down at the press who were just like stony faced and totally unimpressed. Ruby Rose wasn't even, like, was checking out phone and it was just maybe she was tweeting 
she probably was. She is known for that. Uh, but the Cleo Bachelor thing was very strange. By the way, uh, did you get that off my Wikipedia entry? Because my Wikipedia page is weird. At one point in a Cleo interview, I mentioned that Notting Hill made me cry. I think it was Ness... Because they asked me like a hundred questions. Mm. And one of them was like, what film always makes you cry? I didn't just go, hey guys, I'm Paul. Notting Hill makes me cry. I'd seen Notting Hill twice in my life and both times I was very sensitive at the time. Like, I think I've been going through some stuff and it made me cry for some reason. Mm. And so I mentioned that when push came to shove. Yeah, that's the film that makes me cry in response to your question specifically about the crying film thing. And so it lists three facts about me. Um, and they're all pretty wussy. Yeah. And I keep a copy of that magazine to remind me that the press sometimes takes shit out of context. Oh, don't get me wrong. It's not, it's not scandalous, but it is... It is on my Wikipedia page, and as we all know, you can't ever change that. No, so, no, that's there forever. Mm-hmm. Forever. Forever. Yeah. I mean, on the note of uh, Notting Hill and being in sensitive times, mm-hmm. um, I mean, one thing that I've that I'm curious about with a lot of people who work in the line that we work, or even in, in life in general, is is about having relationships. Mm. I think you know to have a genuinely happy um, relationship and to be able to sustain that mm. is a very difficult task. And you've come from a family where both, you know, your parents are still married and they've had, I mean, at least from my observation of a, a very happy, happy marriage. Yeah. It's, They're still it's, very happy together. It's Brady-esque. Yeah. yeah. It's Brady-esque. Yeah. The Brady Bunch, not Tom Brady. Yes. Oh, right. Yeah. I just wanted to clarify that. So your dad brought three guys and your mum brought three girls mm-hmm. pre-made to the marriage. Yeah. And you got a, a nanny. Yeah. Yeah, why not? Because I, I, I did find out that my parents were planning to have more kids between the kids they had. Mm. And so there was a period there where I was like hypothesizing about what it would be like to have a big family. But I'm the eldest and then I got a sister in the middle and a youngest brother. And yeah, my family is tight. We're going really well. Mm. Um, but like, I think that's actually helped with relationships. Well, that was something that I wanted to ask you about mm. because I mean, you're dating Tegan. Yeah. Um, you now live with Tegan. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and you know, the relationship that you guys have from my observation is, you know, one of the healthiest and... Um, sexiest. Sexiest. Mm. Most fornicatory. Um, <laughs> Californicatory. Californicatoring. Yeah. That would be a good name for... A, would it though? A, a catering company. Nah. No? I'll pass. Uh, on the beef? Or the sausage? <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, you guys you guys have, have quite a remarkable relationship and particularly if you take into account that you both work in the entertainment industry, mm. you know, it's fraught with all of these preconceived ideas, long working hours, strange working hours. I mean, I spoke to Nato at length in the first episode about, you know, how he, when he started dating Kate, it was great that she wasn't in the entertainment industry, Mm -hmm. um, but she'd been there. So she had an understanding of the demand that that can place on you. Yeah. The ultimate hybrid. Yeah. 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 I mean, so you came into this relationship having had one that, was a long-term relationship that Long. didn't end very well mm-hmm. um, and then have now found something that works much better. I mean, I guess what I'm asking is how how has that been for you um, in terms of trying to find and sustain a relationship? Oh, it's the best. But like, I wasn't looking for a relationship at the end of the other one. I think that like, with as with work, like the second you start looking for something or wanting it too bad, it's sort of, I don't know if it doesn't come to you, but you certainly notice its absence more. Um so, I mean, yeah, I, I finished the relationship, uh, the six and a half year relationship with this other uh, person. And yeah, I'd known Tegan on and off for a bit and it kind of came up, but it definitely helps that we're both in the industry. I mean, you know, we help each other like with line readings. Like she went for a role this morning in a show that I'm, I've already been cast in. So I went to the audition with her and we'd been done script readings because her character would be playing opposite me. And I'm trying not to obsess over the fact that if she got this role, we would be on screen together, which would be amazing. Shut up. It'd be amazing. That would be amazing. It'd be so good. Um, but And it's a, it's a good script and it's a good role and it'd be really fun to do. But it definitely helps. It also means that occasionally... You know how the... Like the stuff that annoys you most about people are the, are the faults you see in yourself? Yeah. Like really... Like that's why homophobia is a thing. 
I, I think people are awful. Uh, but 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 I do, but I do think that like when one of us, mostly me, let's be honest, is sort of like deeply boned about not getting a role and is acting like a baby, the other person who has that experience in that, like much more experience, frankly, Tegan's been doing this a lot longer than I have, she'll be like, uh, "Dickhead, snap out of it," and she'll list reasons why I shouldn't be upset, and any rebuttal I have is going to be countered by years of logic and experience in that field, which is really helpful. Um, I'd like to think I can bring something to the table in that respect as well, but the fact is she's a far superior human being to me. So um, it definitely helps dating somebody. Uh, I mean, we're not competing for the same roles, which is good. That would be weird. Actually, that's not true. We might occasionally compete for like, let's say they want somebody of a certain age bracket on a show where you'd be playing yourself, you know, uh, a yeah. panel show or whatever. In that case, we might be competing. But in that case, my God, like if she got a role that I was going for, I I couldn't be happier. Like it's... You know, it's a very positive, healthy relationship. You're right. Mm. And again, I'd like to stress this. Very sexy. Just, we are a very attractive couple, structurally. You are structurally mm. uh, very well genetic. Just impeccable. Like a, like a, like a two-person sex Voltron. Like a, yeah, that's, that is how I imagine you guys doing it. Mm-hmm. Like, like two robotic lions kind of locking together. Yeah, yep. um, but I also imagine that someone blows a very large ram's uh, horn at the start. Wait, is there a horn in Voltron? No. Oh. No, but I, I imagined that metaphor. An much, extension. Yeah, yeah. Of, of your Voltron metaphor. No, you don't put no, you don't put me- medieval summoning tools in a Voltron scenario. It's all like <laughs> like cool prisms and jewels and holograms and no shit. double-edged swords in there. No. Well, the Voltron did have a sword, which is. Why didn't he just go to Voltron? You notice with Voltron and like Power Rangers, right? So it's always about this escalation, which makes it kind of this clumsy metaphor for nuclear escalation, right? So you have two, you have everyone on foot, punchy, punchy, punchy. And then the bad guy goes into like a big robot. So they go into a big robot. And then the bad guy goes into like an uber big robot. So they all like join up. Start as Megazord, step on the bad guy. (laughs) That's it. That's the, and in fact, don't ever get out of Megazord, walk around stomping on people. And then you won't have any... Well, that'll be a pretty different show. Yeah. I feel like that's what they're trying to avoid the other monster from doing. Yeah, but they never... (sighs) What was the name of that weird robot that always went, ay, 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 in uh, Power Rangers? I don't know, but I'm pretty sure you just offended like several of your Mexican housemaid listeners. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I never thought that that robot was, uh, was, was Mexican, but... I know Zordon was a thing. Zordon. That big wobbly face in the kind of ah oh, yeah that's right yeah I keep wanting to say C three PO but don't fight it C three PO there you go let it out that felt good mm. that felt real good yeah like a spit valve yes like a spit valve cool <laughs> um do you know go on a spit valve is an amazing thing are we talking about like on a trumpet yeah or any brass instrument right yeah. so I used to, I played trombone in high school um, the bone yeah yeah. Yep, boner boy, they called me. Big old brassy boners. They didn't call me that. No. They wouldn't talk to me because uh, I play trombone, which is the least cool instrument alive. So you w- And it's not even alive. So you walk into the band room on like the first day of music class and there's tables with all the instruments laid out like weaponry, right? So like you've got to pick a weapon before you're a duel. Now, I didn't realize that you can just go, hey, I'll play trumpet too. Somebody grabbed the trumpet. Chris Durlager, sack of shit. I'm sure you're lovely, Chris, but you did anger me that specific day. So now you're the villain. And he did carry around a big sack of poo. He did. Yep. That was his job and his father's job before him. Anyway, so he picked up the trumpet and I just went for, like, I panicked and went for the biggest instrument around, which was the trombone. And then they're like, cool, you're playing trombone now. It was like it was, like, genetically tethered to me, like, the second I, like, my flesh made contact with it. So my parents (laughs) shilled out an unnecessary amount of money for this piece of shit. And... It is the stupidest instrument, uh, but it is also incidentally an instrument that you can play by ear. And because I never learned to read music, I stubbornly just played by ear. So I'm at like Warringah Mall over on the Northern Beaches with a bunch of little schoolboys wearing shorts playing Hang On Sloopy for a bunch of senior citizens whilst across the way more music is showing like the poster for Tokyo Ghetto Pussy's like latest album. And I'm just so conflicted musically. And Nirvana were at their, like, at their nadir at this point. So I'm playing this stupid instrument. And like three years in, I just went to the music teacher. Hey, son, I don't want to play trombone anymore. And she goes, but you're so good. And I go, hey, here's a confession. I never learned to play music. And she's like, if you can play by ear, like for three years on stage, 
then you have more talent than anyone in this room. And I'm like, yeah, but it's trombone talent. It's worthless. And I dropped the trombone and I walked out. And then about three years ago, I was doing a show with the Lords of Luxury, the sketch group, and we were doing the show in Perth. And one of the sketches involved, um, I think somebody delivers a pretty bad smackdown and one of us walks out on stage and plays the sad trombone music, which is wop 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 wop, right? Yep. And so I went, hey, let's have a sound cue. And they were all like, no, let's buy a trombone on eBay. So they bought a secondhand trombone on eBay and they didn't give it to me to play. They gave it to Luke, who, God bless him, uh, had been through some fairly serious surgery and didn't have the best lung capacity. So he would just go, and every single night we were convinced he would pull it out the next night and actually nail it. He never got it. He never, ever, ever got it. And then they were like, what do you want to do with the trombone? And for a moment I had this like, itching feeling in my hands of like I could I could I could learn trombone again because every time I played it in private like between takes between you know shows I, I was making noise and it felt good but again it's the trombone like it's it's useless it's just like vestigial kind of just sack of shitting instrument sorry to all the trombone players have you ever heard Fred Wesley no why yes sorry the JB's yeah amazing. amazing that's right I'm amazing but I was bad right so the like third day I was playing the trombone I realized there was this little little uh, knob on the bottom of the of the slidey thing, right? And knob on the slidey thing. The knob on the slidey thing. And it wasn't making very good noise. And so I'm just in a lounge room, just playing, and my parents are there, and I just kind of reached out, and I hear this, like, this kind of wet smack, and, like, half a liter of my spit, browned by the copper inside the thing, just kind of gooshes out into the carpet, which was this lovely cream color. My dad lost his shit, partly because um, because I'd ruined the carpet. But mostly because he played trumpet when he grew up and so he knew all about the spit valve and he was angry that he hadn't like seen me gone or like in slow motion reaching for this little valve and just like you could hear it sloshing around like I was carrying around like a like a tub of <laughs> like a, like a tub of water like it was audible and I couldn't figure out what it was. That was the longest possible way to describe what a spit valve is. It's basically like it's literally what it says. And I, I the, the reason I do anything creative uh, or comedic at all is because I feel like if I don't I will back up with like emotional spit and die. Like I have to, I have to, you know, you ever get that feeling where you're not, if you're not doing something creative or productive or like you will feel toxic and awful and you just need to have an emotional spit valve, which for me is like, which for me is like my podcast. Like I, if I don't do the podcast every week, I will feel just creepy and sloshy, you know? Mm. What's the, all of the things that you do, the social medias, the Mm. writings, the podcasts. Yep. I mean that's what it that's what it all is. Do you remember the first time that you that you did uh, entertain or have that uh, emotional you know output where you went? This feels really good. I want to keep doing this. I want to do it more. Yeah, there were yeah two specific things. One in fourth grade, I had a teacher called Terry Walsh, um, and I got distracted during English and was drawing blueprints for a helicopter that went underwater detailed blueprints on like tissue paper so that you could see through like overlays and stuff and forth really complex stuff and he looked down at me and picked him up and went what is this this is amazing everybody your next assignment is to draw blueprints paul's going to show you all how and like every time i did something distracted and kind of weird and creative he would like turn it into a thing and he was flinging a triple pluses at me and he started an extension english class just for me and two other students in the class and he took it out of his own time and took us out after school to the one of the other rooms and sat there with the principal and we all did stuff together and like he really fostered my idiocy and he was the first guy to really push the creative thing on me he was amazing yeah uh and then i was asked by my good friend josh brandon who is now a screenwriter in los angeles um a quite successful one actually he was um he approached me in first year university and said i'm doing a stage version of 12 angry men and would you like to play a juror? And I said, Sh- uh, sure. Uh, and he, he's like, just rent it and then pick one. And I picked juror number 11, the German one, who was a watchmaker and is this really amazing articulate character who kind of snaps at a racist halfway through the, through the play and has this great monologue. And so I went, I went 11. And so I adopted a British accent and we did like a two-week run and we sold out. Um, and I, that was when I discovered I wanted to act. So those are the, those are the two times where I've really felt something creative kind of boiling up yeah man if i didn't have those two experiences i would be probably working at a bank now which bank i'm not going to plug a bank let's just say it rhymes with schmember's schmequity ah i was a financial consultant there for a few years uh yeah and there was this terrifying moment where i turned to my then girlfriend and went i want to quit this job so i can focus on radio full-time and this is like eight years ago and she went don't do it uh and then eventually she said do do it 
And when I did do it, it was <laughs> such a dude. Very good. It was terrifying. Like it's so terrifying to just like cut. The, sometimes you can't. There's so many truisms I could be spouting right now. It just it really helped to throw myself out there and huh? Hit it. Yeah. Sometimes to find what you truly need, you must seek the the chalice of. Nup, that's like a Alec Guinness impression. I was going to say, if you're going to do it, at least do it as Michael Caine. Yeah, no, I'm not going to, because I can't think of anything else to say about that. Uh, yeah, but right now, like, I, I cannot express just how much, like, how surely this podcast is helping you, right? Like, you're feeling yeah. it's it's amazing. Podcasting, like, to tie it back to Kevin Smith, is like such an amazing medium. Mm. Um, I'm such a big fan. Well, there's like, no rules at the moment. He's like, he described it as being like the Wild West. Mm. You know, you can. Everyone can have a voice and whatever fucking voice they want. There's no mm-hmm. broadcasters saying yes or no. There's no distributors saying yes or no. Yeah. It's just iTunes is like, you got a podcast? Put it up. Yeah. And if you're lucky enough to have people that are interested, mm. then you might be able to make a bit of money doing it as well. But ultimately, yeah. if all you want to do is have a voice and have expression, it's there for the taking at the moment. Yeah, because it's like, cause the, the trick with life, I think, is to find something or someone you like doing and do it or them or both for the rest of your life, right? So with podcasting, I'm doing it with Chris Straub, who's this webcomic artist across in the States. And he's just had a kid and he's been involved in the gaming industry for a while, but he's pretty much a rock star in the nerd community in the States. Like he's huge. And we did a gig together with the Queensland Symphony Orchestra um, back about a year and a half ago. So the QSO flew, flew the two of us up to Queensland and we hosted this two and a half hour video game music concert with a full orchestra, 4,000 seat venue, sold out, and we were doing comedy bits between the, uh, between the movements. And all the video game stuff was being played on a big screen and it was, it was epic, it was so good. And then he left back to the States and we're like, we should be doing something together. We have this like creative simpatico, like why aren't we creating stuff? Um, and eventually I was listening to so many podcasts, so many podcasts, like so many great podcasts where they're actually doing what they loved. I just went, dude, let's just do this on Skype every week. So now it's out every week. It's called 28 Plays Later. Now I'm plugging my podcast. I hope oh, you don't mind. Feel free. Yeah, great. So it's called 28 Plays Later and it's a comedy video game podcast. And it's um, it's pretty good, I think. Um, we've got uh, good listeners. We have a really dedicated fan base. We have uh, some sponsors on board now, which is totally weird. And it's weird having to like do the corporate kind of mm. producery stuff that you I do, hate like, normally. The start or something. Yeah. But because it's something I care about and it's my baby, like I actually am, I'm, it feels good. I'm like having to have, I have spreadsheets and I like them. I'm proud of them. I think if you have the right project and the right, and, the, and you actually want to be doing something, the amount of energy and reserves of ability you can pull on are just fucking endless. Mm. You know? Yeah. So anyway, listen to it. It's pretty cool. You touched on something there at the start of that. Mm that I'm interested in. What do you think the meaning of all of this is? What, life? Yeah. Uh, I like to think of it as a kind of... I like to think of it... You know how Vikings were pretty much about, like, food and sex and battle and stuff? You know, the whole Klingon thing. I'm like, yeah, "Yeah, that's pretty good. But I really, the older I get, I'm 32 now, and I I find my views changing every year, but I really think it's about just being good to people and just having fun and just, just not being a dick. I just don't be a dick. I was such a dick. I, even just like career-wise, I'd, I'd get offered stuff that I thought was beneath me and I'd just be a little baby about it. You know, you just have those moments when you're younger and I'm watching like some young creatives around me right now who have real talent, but they're being babies. Like they're being divas. And I'm like, you should be so grateful. Like just appreciate what you got. So now any gig I get, any 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 people I interact with, I'm just trying to be nice and professional and have fun. And if, I, and if, if you're in this industry and you don't like it, then fucking quit. Like, you know, just go move to Kyneton and be a lumberjack. That's my secret backup plan, by the way, <laughs> is to learn carpentry and just be in Kyneton and just, just you know. Have you got a snow globe of a lumberjack in Kyneton that you just look at every night? No, but I hope to um, I hope to hew one from the very living wood if I ever go there. Yeah. Hew one. Um, have you got an example of, like, from your own personal experience? Of being a baby? Yeah. Um, nothing that leaps to mind. Just little things, lots of little things. Like you get a gig and it's like, they're not going to pay you the right amount in my time when I was like um, self-represented. And they go, hey, we got this little video game conference up here and it's going to pay this much. And I'm like, "Uh, yeah, nah, I'd probably need more money. And they're like, that's cool. And I probably should have just said yes, because that shit always, not only does it lead to work, but like I'm doing this video game thing now up in Mackay in about 10 days uh, from now, from when we record. And it pays okay, but the people are nice. And it's a couple of days 
like doing weird shit. Like, I don't know, man. I'm just, I'm doing what I do because I like it. And if I was, if I, there was a while ago where I got really cynical and kind of weird about it. And, um, and then I remembered that I worked at a bank and I was miserable and I'm very lucky. Mm. And we're all very, very lucky to be doing what we love. Um, and who we love. Mm. Mm. Who in my case is, uh, you know, Jesus died for our sins. He died for your sins. Yeah. Sorry, I have Catholic guilt occasionally. It bubbles up. Oh, that's okay. Do you believe in uh, no. in God and all that? Not really. Oh, I don't know. I like... No, I don't know. I don't know. I like to keep my options open. I'm an agnostic. I'm not an atheist. I'm not a... I, what I despise is fundamentalism of any kind. And there are fundamentalist atheists. atheists. Anybody who jams their beliefs down your throat, whether mm. their beliefs or anti-beliefs is horrible. So, no, I, I was raised Catholic. My family is still kind of religious. What does that? What does that mean to you? They're loosely religious. I think. I think like a moral structure is good. I think faith and belief are very different things. Uh, I think a moral framework is really important. However, you get that is great. The second it starts to interfere with or hurt people, that that's when I have an issue. So my there was stuff my parents disagreed with in the church. We were raised pretty Catholic, and then we got a new priest, and he was pretty anti-gay, and we all just kind of went, "Nah, we're good," you know, like. Uh, faith's a very personal thing you know like I think you get to kind of sculpt your own faith a little bit so I don't know man shit this just got really dark this got really <laughs> you're shaking your head cool uh, yeah I'm not, I'm not very religious I'm not anti-religious either That's what is your faith it sounds know. like equalities are pretty big it's, I'm really, I'm just very, I just think people should be nice to each other. I don't think that's such a big thing. I don't think, and if, if religion tells you that and you actually follow through with it, great. If religion threatens you with smiting and then you go through with it out of fear, that's not, that's not, that's not real goodness. Like that's not, mm. you know. Um, I mean, I guess if I was, if I had anyone or anything, like a figurehead I was kind of trying to impress or look up to, um, I'm not disappointed in kind of like a God-ish area, like above me in the clouds. It's probably my parents who I don't want to disappoint. Like I like, I love and respect them so much that I wouldn't want to let them down. So they're kind of my moral framework. I don't really use religion for morality anymore. Um, although I did just once kill a drifter to see him die, just to see what it felt like. Yeah, we've all done that. Yeah, of course, of course. Uh, but that's really just, you know, that's a rite of passage thing. Mm, yeah. It's like the Catholic equivalent of Rumspringer. Oh, the oh Rumspringer. That's is that is that the Vulcan thing? No, Vulcans do Ponfar. No, Rumspringer is the Amish yeah yeah. Thing. I know the Amish where they let them out and go. Hey, here's all this cool shit. Hey, do you still want to churn butter? <laughs> we didn't think so. Bye, youngsters. Cow um, nipples. But Vulcans have this thing called Ponfar where, like, I think every couple of decades they get this insane urge to to basically to fuck. Mm. And if they don't, they die. They get angrier and angrier and angrier and more less less rational, and then they because they repress emotions for so long that every like couple of decades they kind of. So what happens in one episode of Star Trek? And I'm I'm gonna because I, I I'm gonna because I have to run, so I'm gonna finish or at least almost finish on this. You can do the actual finishing. Yeah. Uh, is in this one episode of Star Trek, um, Spock starts acting really weird, and they're like, "Hey, Spock, what's up?" And he explains this far thing and th- and he's like but it will be a dereliction of duty I will just die at my post good day and they're like don't be a dickhead Spock just let's we'll take you to Vulcan it's fine and then they're like he's like no no seriously you don't understand shit's about to get crazy so they take him down to Vulcan and uh, he participates in all these rituals and he's got this mate that he's got locked in with right and then what happens is she comes on to, to Kirk and because of the rules of Ponfar Kirk and Spock now have to fight to the death and if Spock doesn't kill Kirk then the Ponfar ritual, like the buildup of chemicals, will actually kill him. He has to kill Spock. So Spock has to kill Kirk, or Kirk has to kill Spock. And Kirk's like, I love you, man. I'm going to do this. But he doesn't say it that way. So they have this fight with the famous <laughs> big stick things with the spikes. Like yep. that cable guy scene. That's where it's from. Right. And then eventually what happens is uh, Spock kills Kirk. And he comes out of this blood haze and is like, oh God, what have I done? And she's like, I'll fuck you now. And he's like, I don't want to fuck, idiot. I just killed my best friend. But of course, Kirk never, um, Spock never shows emotion at all. So then he goes up to the Enterprise and Kirk's there and he's alive. And Spock has this incredible moment and I'm missing Leonard Nimoy right now so much. And he turns to Kirk and just breaks character and goes, Jim! And just grabs him and everyone's like, holy shit, this is cool. And then he looks around ashamed and just stands straight and goes back into Spock mode. He goes, I'm glad to see you're all right, Captain. And um, they're all kind of like really happy that he's that everything's going well. And Kirk is like, I almost got him. I almost got him to say 
something human. I almost got him to come out of his shell. Um, that's my favorite Star Trek moment. I don't know how we got there. That's uh, very profound. I just I love Star Trek so much. Mm. Yeah, which is going to make later this year very hard because a new Star Wars comes out, and I'm going to have to pick one. Apparently. Is it this year? Is yeah. it next year? It's this year. This year, right. Yep. Oh, obviously, wasn't paying attention. Before uh, we wrap up, because there is so much that I um, want to talk to you about, but uh, one thing that I do like to end the show with is what makes you silly? Um, uh, okay. I didn't have a TV when I was growing up. And as a result, I spent about six or seven years without any kind of like audiovisual input and it's really hard to interact with people at school and talk about the cool shit without a tv plus my parents were very poor uh not poor but they were sending three kids to private school and they were working four jobs so they were like we were very very low on money so i couldn't get all the cool shit that i liked i couldn't get comic books and i couldn't get you know we couldn't afford good junk food which is a contradiction in fucking terms and as a result i went through school kind of pretending to be up on all this pop cultural stuff so when i hit like 17 or 18 around that point and i started earning money and my parents were like financially very comfortable and i started having access to tv and things i just went balls to the wall like i just binged on everything that i've missed out on for the past seven years and i still haven't kind of finished tapping that reservoir of shows like fresh prince and full house and stuff like that things that i missed as a kid like i wasn't allowed to watch the simpsons mm. so for me now any kind of audio visual any entertainment whatsoever video games i review video games for a living anything i do that kind of nourishes the child in me that didn't get the cool stuff i wanted in that crucial age bracket when you really should be binging on fun stuff and eating like sugary cereal on saturday morning and watching cartoons anything i can do to recapture that lost time makes me like just incredibly irrationally happy. So that's kind of why I nurture my inner child so much. And that's why I pursued a career reviewing video games for money is because like, I don't want to let that go. Like I missed out on so much time. I have so much time to make up for. Mm. So anything I can do or get my hands on that evokes that anytime I see a Pez dispenser in a shop, I will buy it. (laughs) I have an ET Pez dispenser with like his, like a brown stick of the Pez dispenser body, right? And then a brown little wrinkly ET head. And then I have the variant, which is red with him with the hoodie on. Where he's in the basket. You may be one of the only people in the world that has two ET Pez dispensers. Yeah, I know. And that's because like I, that, that stuff just makes me very, very, very happy. And I think people around me have come to kind of accept that. Uh, and I think that's, I think it's really important to, you know, fetishize your youth in a weird way and make it define you as an adult person. I'm 32 and I play with Lego. I think it's a problem. Anyway, that's what makes me silly to answer your question. I'm 30 and I watch wrestling obsessively. I watch wrestling too. Yeah. yeah. And you went to SummerSlam and played WWE 2K14 with the Ultimate Warrior? Yeah. No. Yes, 2K14 with the Ultimate Warrior. And then I got to um, play some and interview Daniel Bryan and Steve Austin and Mick Foley. Steve Austin? Yeah. You son of a bitch. He's very nice. Yeah. He has an excellent handshake. I imagine he would. Mm Mm-hmm. Because it's the bottom line. Because Stone Cold said so. Mm Mm-hmm. It Mm -hmm. seems like a good place to end. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes, Nick, we know you're not wearing any pants. Yeah, Nick's not wearing any pants, everyone. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Paul, for coming up next. I had a great time chatting with you, and thank you all for listening. And if you're liking what you're hearing, friends, I will shoot all kinds of gratitude all over you uh, if you feel like leaving a review on Podbean, iTunes, Stitcher, wherever one might leave a review or, you know, sharing it on your social medias. Uh, you can find us at facebook.com slash C-U-N-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. Well, I hope you have a great week, friends, and I'm so fucking excited about next week's guest. I'm so thrilled that I actually got the chance to get him in for a podcast. He's a very old friend of mine. Uh, we've been collaborating together for uh, 12, 13 years now. We produced our very first show together and now he is taking Hollywood by storm. You may know him as Spartacus from Stars TV series Spartacus. Coming up next, Liam McIntyre. <laughs>